0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams.
1: And I'm Kirk McElhern.
0: Hello, and thanks for hitting the play button on us today. If you like clicking buttons, be sure to hit the follow button on our Next Track Cast Twitter account. And you can stay up to date on info and articles that we tweet about as a sort of adjunct to the show. This is episode number 111 of The Next Track, and we are pleased to be welcoming back one of our favorite guests from a couple of months ago. He is award-winning audiobook narrator Simon Vance. Simon, it's great to see you again, and thanks for being with us, and congratulations on your recent audio awards hosting gig and award. Well, thank you, Doug. Thank you. It's nice to be here on the
2: 111st edition. That's uh, great. <laughs> that's right. 111st. <11th, laughs> that's right.
1: Good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. You were on the show in episode 93 back in February. Yes. Was it that long ago?
2: <laughs> I think these days time just stretches out. Like one week feels like two years. So It yeah.
1: does. But you were inducted into the Audiobook Hall of Fame and you did a wonderful presentation ...at the Audio Awards, which is sort of like the Oscars of audiobooks. Mm-hmm. I'll put a link in the show notes to the presentation. And you did some great stand-up as you opened there as the MC.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you. There's a new, a new career strand. I think if the audiobooks fade, then uh, you know I might head to Vegas and, and hire myself out as an MC or something.
1: <laughs> yet, yet, audiobooks are more popular than ever. But we're not going to talk about audiobooks today. Today, th- this is a- another installment in our Irregular series of How People Listen to Music Today... When we interviewed you back in February, you said before we started the interview that you would love to just talk about music because you're such a music fan. And mm. the way you listen to music has changed so much. So here's your chance. Tell us, tell us about your history as a music <laughs> listener.
2: Where to begin? Oh, I, I mean, I, here's the thing. Uh, if you talk to my mother, uh, she says, I discovered the Beatles. Uh, and, and I think I discovered women within our family. Because I go back, I was born in 1955. So the Beatles were, you know, getting going. I was in Brighton, so a long way from Liverpool. So I wasn't aware. I was too young, of course, to to know the sort of what the street scene was. But in 62, they were on the radio and my, uh, on a sad side, my grandma, my father's mother had just died, and in the years preceding that, she didn't like music in the house. So after 62, music was allowed, so there was the radio was on, and I fell in love with the Beatles. I bought my first record in 1964, so that would make me sort of eight going on nine, and I bought the 45 of From Me to You by the Beatles. And it cost, I think, it cost six and eight. It may have been the cheaper. They They went from... Five shillings to six, six shillings and eightpence to seven shillings and sixpence, and I think it was around the five shillings or six shillings and eightpence, which I, five shillings I can transfer to new money. That's twenty-five pence now. Six and eight, I have no idea. And <laughs> seven and six is probably seven, uh, seven. Oh, never mind. It's new money, and it's so long ago.
1: <laughs> I am so glad they got rid of that because I would not understand that. Um, it's easy in this country with the decimal system. But it's interesting that a lot of people do remember the first record they buy, the same as they remember their first kiss. For, for people who are real music lovers, it is that sort of moment where you lose
2: your musical virginity and all of a sudden you own some music. It was amazing, yes. That that sense of having having something, and and of course it was the only one I had, and, and you you, you played endlessly, so it's in your head constantly. I had that same experience later on, and, and you know maybe we can get to that. But I, when I went to university, I took uh, two cassettes with me for my first term in 1974, and I just would turn them over and over and over. So for the first you know two months or so at university, I, I have these particular tunes going through my head. So
1: when I left New York to spend a year in France that ended up being 28 years. In 1984, I had a Walkman or an Iowa portable cassette player, and I brought about a dozen cassettes with me, which, you know, wasn't really a lot compared to all the music that I had at the time. And I think the one that I listened to the most was Exile on Main Street on one side and Sticky Fingers and... Let It Bleed, Beggar's Banquet. Beggar's Banquet on the other side. And I was hitchhiking around France and I would never take more than two or three cassettes with me. And I must've listened to that a hundred times in that year to, to the point where I find it hard to listen to it anymore
2: because it's just so familiar. Takes you right back. Well, I've listened, I, I tell you what they were. It was, um, one was Paul Simon's uh, solo album, which had mother and son reunion on it. Uh, the other one had two albums on it. On one side, it was days of future past by the moody blues. And the other side was selling England by the pound by, uh, Genesis. Um, so yeah, those ones. And I was doing civil engineering my first year at university, Leeds University, uh, which I went to primarily because, one, one, the distance from home, but also live at Leeds had been recorded at the student refectory there in, in 71. So it's like a great rock, live rock band venue. So I went to Leeds partly for that.
0: <laughs> That's great that you decided to go to Leeds based on the Who Live at Leeds. That's yeah. uh, one of my favorite albums, if not my very favorite live album. Uh, I'm frequently mentioning it on the show. It's a great record.
2: No, it's an extraordinary album. Uh, and, And it was a great place. And I went to a concert every week my first year there. But, yeah, I was doing civil engineering that first year, 74, 75, And so I'd have my weekends. It was like nine to five full-time lectures. And then at the weekend, I had to do technical drawings. So I'd sit there on a Saturday, and I'd just have these tapes going over and over and over again. Apart from when Alan Freeman was on Radio 1 on the Saturday afternoons. He was a British DJ, and he played semi-progressive music on a Saturday afternoon from about 2 till 5. So I always had the radio on there. But other than that, it was the tapes going round and round.
1: What kind of bands did you get to see in those years in Leeds? Where did they play in Leeds? At the university?
2: Yeah, the student was, it was the largest single campus university in, in, in England. How was that? 10,000 students, which was a lot for a British university in one place. And we had the student refectory, which was the, you know, the, the restaurant, the meal place. It was right by the students' union. And it was a long, thin, we called it smarty tube. Uh, you know, the English candies come in little tubes. And it was like a smarty tube. It's long and thin. Um, and I remember David Bowie came round. And the day he was supposed to come in, he, he his road crew came in, and the, the the stage was six inches too narrow, so he couldn't play his set. So he had to couldn't they couldn't put his gear up. So he he had to cancel. Um, but of those bands, gosh, if I can remember, Wishbone Ash came round every year. They were fantastic. I love Wishbone Ash. They were live. Who else did I see? Oh, uh, Curved Air, I saw them every week I went to a concert. And, of course, I can't remember. It was a long time ago, and I'm getting old.
1: Yes, that's a good excuse.
2: But my concert-going experience began in 69. My first concert ever was um, uh, the Dome in Brighton on September the 18th, 1969. I still have the program. The Bonzo Dog Band, Free and Family. Wow, family. That Excellent. was five, cost, cost me five shillings, 25 pence. And then two weeks later, for five shillings, I saw Pink Floyd. Wow in 1969. Wow. And the only remarkable thing about Pink Floyd that I remember, apart from the music, was quite, quite wild, was that Nick Mason had two bass drums. Yeah. And Pink sort of hand-painted in fluorescent letters on one and Floyd on the other. But there were no lights or anything extraordinary going on. They hadn't, I, I think, maybe there was some of that melty light stuff. But there wasn't the whole big show that there was later on. Yeah, in the in the early years, they were just
1: like a, a bar band. Playing on big stages, they didn't have much of a show. Yeah, '69 would have been metal, right? Or even pre-metal. Metal was maybe 1970s. So they were
2: they were still on the cusp of their longer work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sid Barrett had gone by that time, but not for long. I don't remember much about it. As I say, the only thing I remember is, oh, look, two bass drums. Because before
0: that, I I assumed they only ever had one bass drum. Why would a drummer need two bass drums? Well, and of course, as you know, as the discoverer of the Beatles, Ringo only needed one bass drum. There
2: you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's all he needed. It was great. Didn't Spinal Tap have three bass drums? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, possibly. Well, I was just thinking I was going to go into the Carl Palmer era, Emerson (laughs) Lake and Palmer. When Carl Palmer, you couldn't see him. Every
0: drum was a bass drum. You
2: couldn't see him behind the kit. Yeah. It was extraordinary. I saw them at uh, Brighton. One of my favourite uh, Brighton experiences, the Brighton Dome. It, was, uh, it used to be horse stables for the uh, Royal Pavilion, a big circular place. And they made it a, a concert here. I'm not sure when in their history they did it. But it held about 2,000. Led Zeppelin in one of their final UK tours of small venues. They played there. It was Christmas of 73, I think. And it's the one time I skipped off school to get tickets and so did half the half the sixth form, I think. Um, and uh, at the end of the concert, Robert Plant came back on after the lights had gone up, and he just and they'd switched all the all the amplification off, and he just sang Christmas carols with us. It was December twenty-first, I think. And I've got a a friend of mine got me a pirated tape of the event a few years back. He sent it to me, and uh, it was like it was extraordinary. But yeah, so that, that, I mean, my live experience, yeah. In in an episode where we were
1: talking about progressive rock, we were discussing with Jerry Ewing, who is the editor of Prague Magazine here in the UK, and we were discussing that whole link that progressive rock bands had with church music and carols and and the whole choral tradition Uh um, that you have in the UK. So it's Mm. kind of interesting that Robert Plant would just sort of naturally, uh, almost say let his hair down, but would just sort of naturally join in with that sort of festive music.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was just a wonderful atmosphere. You know, most people had left. I just I'd gone down the front with everybody else who was thumping on the stage. Hey, come on back and he strolled out again and, and was, I don't know how long he was out there for, but it's just a, a very a very strong memory in my head. I mean, in in terms of getting on the the, the actual vinyl front of what I was listening to, I was thinking last night as I was thinking about talking to you guys, and I remember the first two long players I bought. One was To Our Children's Children's Children, Moody Blues. That was in 69. And there was one that always stuck in my head, and, and I've got a friend in England who actually has my copy of it, and I want to get it back. It's the CBS Records sampler called Fill Your Head With Rock. And I looked it up on Wikipedia and they did three of them about that time. And it was um, it was a sampling of all it had Al Stewart on. It had uh, Laura Nero, is it Niro Nero? Um, uh, Moondog. I don't know if you remember Moondog, um, sort of orchestral guy. He was blind. Um, and a lot of America. It was a double album set, but it was very well known at the time.
0: You know, now that you mention that, uh, it was CBS, right?
2: Yeah, CBS Record Sampler.
0: Yeah, I remember that being sold for many years, actually, in the early 70s. Um, I remember the advertisements for it. I just remember it said, CBS Lost Leaders, And it was a a, a sampler, and every time I I thought to buy it, I was thinking, well, about 50% of the artists I didn't care for, but I definitely remember that collection.
2: That one uh, had a really good range of uh, samples on it. I mean, a band called Flock, a lot of well-known ones, a lot of less well-known, and some i never heard of. And that actually relates later on. When I was at the BBC in the 80s, I spent, for several years, I really wasn't connected with the music business but then a friend of mine in the states an old university friend uh sent me uh he put together one of those mixtapes and i sort of see that in the same way because it suddenly opened my eyes to all the other music out there that i've been missing for several years um and on that occasion it was things like Ten Thousand maniacs rem men at work um and he'd put a couple of tracks of each of these on it and it just sort of suddenly because there's something about age that you get into, I'm sure this doesn't affect everybody, but there's a sort of you know, rock music that's for young people going to university and then you get a proper job and you become an adult and you grow out of these things. And I was at Radio 4 for several years, not really listening to music and then suddenly getting reintroduced to all this stuff I'd missed. And go, oh, actually, this is still good. It's not like only for people in the 20s. I mean, it takes you back when the Beatles said, oh, yeah, we'll only be doing this for, this for 10 years, and then we'll get a proper job. Ringo's going to be a hairdresser and you know, whatever. But, um, you yeah, know, as you get older, you think, I'll grow up and do adult things. And the rock stars themselves don't expect to be. You get Paul McCartney doing carpool karaoke recently. He's 76 or something, and he's just released a new album. But they didn't expect that their music would still be in in circulation
1: this late. I just listened to an interview on a podcast earlier today about classic rock music and it's someone I hope to get on the show because it's a book about why classic rock is 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 still around, why it's why it's still thriving in many ways. You know, this was you're talking about the first generation of rock, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin and all that. And they put their imprint on society. They created the boundaries of a genre. Then the classic rock format came onto radio, which made it possible for this just to be over and over because it fits into a format. And And the, the guy who was being interviewed said, you know, when you think about it, you can still hear Hotel California on the radio today. Yeah. You can still go back and hear, you know, anything by the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones and all that. So they had no idea that this was going to happen. Didn't Mick Jagger say something like that? that they'd be finished by the time they were 25?
2: Yeah, yeah, they were all... Uh, I think it, surprised, it surprises everybody if they sort of reflect on it. Um, it's also
1: surprising that Keith Richards is still alive. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's amazing. It's like he's preserved in something. I don't know, something he was doing that, that should have poisoned him years ago is, is, is probably giving him the energy he needs to keep going.
0: Bob Lefsetz wrote a uh, column recently uh, talking about Paul McCartney doing Carpool Karaoke and, and saying that, Paul is still here, but when he's not here anymore, that's going to be weird. <laughs> it's going to be weird when there there is no Paul McCartney or Keith Richards is what I was thinking of. It's going to be strange when Keith Richards and Mick Jagger aren't with us anymore. David Bowie was a little shocking, but I think you know people like Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, Ringo, when those people aren't around, it will be a, an unusual Bob place. Bob Dylan. Yeah.
1: Robert Plant. Sure. Eric Clapton, you know, the, the real the real trendsetters, when they're gone, and this is going to happen, some of them might live to be 100. I'm sure Keith Richards is going to outlive <laughs> all of them. But some of them are going to start dying soon. They're getting to that age. And this is going to be a real shock for, for our generation, at least.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because it is our generation. And there are people... Who was it when Paul McCartney did something with some rapper or something, and people are going, "Who is this Paul McCartney guy?" You know, because there are there are a lot of people who aren't aware of that, and and I wonder about this, our connection with music, because we were in our teens and whatever when this was happening. And it, it's sort of in our DNA. It's so driven down. And music was so you had to go out and buy the, LP, buy the LP or something, or the only radio station sort of would force feed you with whatever they could put on the air. Um, and these days, not to insult it, it's not all Muzak, but it's sort of Muzak. It's just background. It's so easy to dip in and dip out. I mean, I listen to, you know, these days, I have the stuff I go back to. I got a big King Crimson box set recently. I'm just finding the Steve Wilson remixes of Jethro Tull stuff which I think is beautiful I did buy the uh, Sergeant Pepper reissue 5.1 stereo surround and stuff last year and so on but I also have Pandora and I put on contemporary folk artists or music and, and and I'll have that on on a Sunday morning and I I won't know who they are I don't connect to any of them I'm not listening there's no DJ saying here's the latest single by so-and-so so-and-so and you you name check it and you go oh I must go and buy that it's 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 bland in a way. I mean, it's good music, because these people are talented musicians, but there's a certain... You don't get that absolute connection with the artist that you used to, unless you really go and work for it. And I don't know how the the youngsters these days do it. Um, I must talk to my son. He's he's a youngster of 28, (laughs) which means he's lived longer than Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and... uh... (laughs) all those people. Well, you, you made an interesting point
1: about that Beatles record. It was the only record you had, and you listened to it over and over. Today, you just go to your Apple Music, Spotify, Pandora, and you just turn on the spigot. So you don't have that connection. We've talked about this countless times, about buying music and playing music. You no longer have that connection. Interestingly, my son, who is 27, he's very much into EDM, electronic dance music, but he's also been very influenced by a lot of music that I've played. He loves Brian Eno, Harold Budd. He's really into ambient music. But he's the kind who will go to the websites that, like the the internet equivalent of the, those rock family trees, This these people were in this band and they moved over here, and he'll go back and listen to the previous records of the previous bands. There's a record label that he really liked and that was selling a subscription for all their releases by download for 50 bucks a year, so he subscribed to that he does have this sort of tunnel vision allowing him to focus on music more than I think average people. But what what you say is interesting about the fact that there's no DJ telling you who's singing the songs. If you don't look at your, your, your phone or your stereo to see who it is, you don't have any reason to go look for the music. You know, Doug, you were a DJ and you would give a little bit of yeah trivia about the person and that trivia would ground them in reality
0: right and it also served to educate your listeners it's called a cell front cell and a back cell you tease what's coming up and then of course you run down what you just played simon i have this thought experiment i like to throw at people and um i'm imagining that in the 70s when you were a teenager you didn't listen to a lot of music from the 30s
2: i did uh, fall in love with glenn miller but I didn't go out and buy anything. My my parents might have had the album in their collection or something like that. But
0: no, you're right. You're right. Sure. You'd, you'd hear music, incidentally, that your parents had. But on the radio, you wouldn't hear Glenn Miller mixed in with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who. Unlike today, where we always hear music from 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I just remember as a teenager, I don't think I would be caught dead listening to, you know, music that was made before I was born. And yet nowadays we have this huge palette, this huge, this huge forest yeah. of, of, of musical choices. And it's just so different from the way we listened to music when we grew up.
2: Well, it, it astonished me. I, I was um, in the late 80s um my then wife some friends of hers came over and their kids were like 14 or 15 so this is like 1989 1990 uh and I thought well what 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 music do you listen to I said these kids and and they said well uh I like Eric Clapton I listen to Led Zeppelin I thought huh and that was my first time I mean now it's like okay I accept that because they've I understand now that they are people to look to but back then i'd gone through that whole period of the mid-70s when punk grew up and anything like genesis and yes blah, and then there was the 80s and it's like music sort of came in waves and then it disappeared right and the idea of right. the idea of looking up to led zeppelin or eric clapton from the past in the way that i guess some people did in the 60s look to you know, well like people look to jazz musicians you know, I think they've always had a sort of a history. To to me, when I grew up, it seemed like the history it was not going to be a history. It was going to be, these are the Beatles, that was 10 years ago. These are the, This is Zeppelin, that's 10 years ago. And we move on, the new thing, the new thing, the new thing, the new thing. And now we seem to have settled. Well, especially because from the 60s to the
1: 70s, we went through so many waves of music from the sort of Beatles-type pop, from psychedelic music, Pink Floyd, and then the prog rock came in and died out before you could even wear out the records. Punk came in and died out before you could even wear out a pair of jeans. <laughs> and then things started stabilizing once you got into the 80s. And it could be because of things like music videos and MTV that, that gave it the sort of post-New Romantic period. Music kind of stabilized a lot. And then hip-hop came in. But there weren't so many changes after that period. And if you look at music today, it's not... the The, the genres the main genres of music
2: aren't that different from what there was in the 80s. There was a great energy in the 60s and 70s. I mean, you just have to look at how many albums each band produced. They, if they only did one a year, that was terrible. They do at least two albums a year or something like that. And I can remember being shocked in the 80s to realize it had been four years between a Pink Floyd album. Four years? That's ridiculous. Um, because, because I was so used to this turnover. Well, technically, Pink Floyd had sort of broken up so well there was that yes they they had difficulties, but even even after that you know in the early 90s and stuff but um when the three of them were 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 still producing but it it was still uh other bands as well you know the 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 standard now is a few years i mean how often does u2 put an album out it's three or four years i mean the the rolling stones i mean i I guess okay they're 70s (laughs) they're in their 70s so you got to give them a little break but you know it was that energy and i I just wonder that drove that drove the changes because what surprised me as well was the, I had this view that they were making money, making vast sums of money. Some people, were, the managers were making money, record labels maybe making money. I just realized in the, in the uh, liner notes for this King Crimson box set I got, The Road to Red, um, Robert Fritt was talking about some of the guys in the band on this 74 tour that they recorded every single gig is in this box. They, this will be the first time they made any money from it because at the time they got a daily allowance which barely covered expenses, and they saw nothing else. And so many bands at that time weren't making any money. They were being incredibly creative. They loved the music. But there wasn't, apart from the few at the top or the managers and the record labels, there wasn't a lot of money going to the musicians. But it was the energy, the the, the joy of making the music that I think uh, you know fed this. One of my favorite movies
1: about music, goes back to that time and shows that joy and energy and creativity. Almost famous.
2: Oh, I love that movie. I've got a friend who plays a roadie in that, and he he had a great time, great experience. He's, he'd sit and play uh, guitar with uh, Chris Columbus, his, was it wife, she's in Heart, one of the, the guitarists in Heart. Nancy and, Wilson. Yeah, he the guitarist, and uh, he, he was playing guitar with her in the back. But I love that, that movie. That really captures bo- both the
1: experience as a fan um, loving music and probably the experience as a musician. I interviewed Peter Frampton some years ago for my first book about the iPod. I got in touch with as many musicians as I could. Most didn't want to talk to me. Obviously, Mick Jagger never even returned my emails. Um, (laughs) But basically, to talk about, you know, how is the iPod changing music? And he was the, I I don't know what his role was, but he co-wrote the music that they sang, and he was like a consultant to Cameron Crowe on that movie. And he was talking about, uh, you know, how just the, the, the period was so liberating, that they had no worries. Everything was taken care of. And, okay, they probably didn't make a lot of money, but they probably put a lot of money up their nose, and they probably drank a lot of the money and trashed hotel rooms, and they had a great time. And then they all grew up, and obviously that's part of the message of the movie, of course. They all grew up, and it's changed. And now the the ones who were doing well live in villas in the south of France or Andorra or some other tax haven, which, of course is the height of um, irony. You know, there were all these bad boys who were talking about changing things and they go off and live in a tax haven. Terrible, isn't it?
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's a, there, is a, there is that sort of cliche and it's partly true, but I think that the mass of musicians around that time did not make the money. I saw a documentary, I was on a flight and I caught a documentary about Mick Ronson, you know, who was, who was instrumental in a lot of, <laughs> no pun intended, in a lot of, um, a lot of Bowie's work. Uh, influenced a lot of Boa's work early on, and not didn't really get the recognition for it, and and didn't make a huge amount of money, you know. So uh, you know, it's it's extraordinary. But I, I'm going to make a pitch for another rock movie that I absolutely love. It's called uh, Still Crazy. I love that movie. Bill Nye plays aging rock star, one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I was telling Doug about that a
0: few months ago. Doug, did you ever catch it? Oh, I've seen it. It's one of those positive upbeat British movies. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think Bill Bill Nye, he always plays the exact same character, but I think his character is just wonderful. Stephen Ray is the one who's really down to earth, but I just love that movie. It's like a it's like a low budget version of Almost Famous in a way. Yeah. Um it's about a rock band, link in the show notes about a rock band that gets together to try and do a, um, a reunion tour and maybe a record and all of the difficulties in getting everyone to do it and going on the road. And it, it's really charming. It really is. Um, Billy
2: Connolly plays the Head of the Roadies and he's wonderful. The, the Scottish. That's comedian. right. He's fantastic. And, and I think to me that illustrates the, the going out on tour. The, the rock bands these days are touring so much more because that's how they make money. That's why they're doing all these things. You see Jethro Tull out on the road again now. And, uh, you know, that's that's where the money is, uh, because the albums and stuff are not bringing the, the money in they used to.
1: Even Bob Dylan does 80 to 100 shows a year and has done now for 30 years. He's never stopped. I mean, he just does. It's it's
2: the uh, the never-ending tour, I think. Yeah, that's it. what
1: they call it. <laughs> so yeah. let's talk a little bit technical, because you're talking to us over Skype and we're we have the video on, so we can see that you're in your home studio. So you're clearly a man who masters recording equipment. <laughs> How has this changed the way you listen to music? What's your home stereo setup? Uh,
2: I've I, I've got um surround sound. Um, I love gadgets, and I've I think since I I settled into a you know bought a house and so on, I've I wanted to put in surround sound. I have a an AV receiver. Uh, I I've. It's, a, it's an Onkyo one, and it's got 5.1 surround. I think the option of 7.1 surround, but I love having surround sound, mostly for watching movies and so on and so forth. So I do listen to music on that because I have an Apple TV. I've got the new Apple TV 4, I think the one that 4K uh, TV, um, and I uh, I listen to the music on that. But I also have a couple of Sonos speakers, um, which I use on my iPhone, and that sound is pretty good, just hanging around the house. My speakers, I I, I had big boston acoustics speakers they were like four feet tall and a foot wide and so on and so forth they, we've got a smaller house now so i ditched those i got a couple of definitives so I, i'm not high scale i mean there's way better i could spell th- spend thousands i think i spend enough as it is um it's good enough for me we have an alexa in the corner um one of the amazon things and um we'll often just say you know play me jethro tull or whatever you can tell i'm a fan of jethro tull but i um i I, you know will do that um and i will often if i'm working in the garden i use my airpods in my ear and listen to music from my phone um i i have a big collection i mean i had 600 still have 600 vinyl lps um i got a lot of cds when the cds came out a mass of those i don't even know how many cds i've got but they're all in the garage because it's all on my Apple Music now. Um, I did actually go through a phase of just putting it all on my Apple Music, as much of it as I could. Um, I still need to go back and make sure I've got everything. But um, And these days, uh, I I subscribe to Apple Music, so I really... When I buy a CD or something, it's usually because there's something specific about it, like the King Crimson box set.
1: Well, And King Crimson is not on any of the streaming services, so there's no other way you're going to get well,
2: it. Well, here's here's what happened. Uh, I was doing the washing up late at night, and I said, uh, Alexa, play – which one is it? I think it's the Jethro Tull radio on Pandora. And it played – uh, it plays some of the classic stuff, it plays Genesis and so on as well. And it played this one track Like, And I said, uh, you know, Alexa, what is this track? And it told me Kingdreams and blah, blah, blah. And I looked it up, found it was a track off. It was Asbury Park, the sort of improv that they did off this Road to Red. And I at that, uh, that evening, and I had the box set in my hand the next day from doing the washing up the night before listening to that. So there was a connection there.
0: That's funny because I recently had an experience where I was unable to get a, uh, an album because it wasn't streamed, so I had to order it through Amazon, and I, had, I was frustrated that I had to wait two whole days <laughs> to get it in the mail. And then yeah. I had an experience shortly thereafter where I heard a song that I didn't know uh, during dinner. I shazammed it, uh, and less than a minute later... I was listening to the album in my home stereo, so it's really amazing. A two days is a bit too long, yeah. and I'm used to hearing things almost immediately. Yeah.
2: In terms of listening, I do, as I say, listen through my stereo, my surround sound and so on, but um, I have as much fun listening through Alexa when I'm poddling around the house or on my, on my earbuds. I'm not that much of an audiophile that I need to have pristine sound and so on and so forth. And in fact, the, I won't say I was disappointed, but there was a sort of a, a letdown a little bit with the Sergeant Pepper the remixed version was so good and so clear it was almost too good it was like this is not how i remember it and i can yes i can hear every single tinkle you know i can i can hear when when ringo flicks a bit of fluff off his leg you know it's like oh yeah this is so cool but it's like i don't want to be that alert <laughs> i don't it, it, it was it was urging me to be alert while i'm listening to it it's not just
1: that it's that you have this mental image of how it sounds, and that image is being perverted by the new mix. I felt the same way. I don't want it to sound better. I want it to sound the way it sounded the first time I heard and
2: it. And I, I I, think that maybe uh, the, it was too heavy-handed a remix, because the Steve Wilson, Jethro Tull versions that I'm listening to of Aqualung, Minstrel in the Gallery, Heavy Horses, they are beautiful. They, they release a stereo remix as well as a 5.1. The 5.1 is the one that, well, this music wasn't made for that, unless it's live, unless it's a, a remixed live, and then you get the audience and you get a sense of the space. But the studio albums are stereo at, at the most. The first albums I bought were mono. I mean, I had the Beatles' oldies, but goldies were mono. The Beatles' white album was, was, was mono that I got. But, um, yeah, the 5.1 is, is too demanding. But The stereo, the ste- Steve Wilson, as I say, of the Jazz Hotel does a brilliant job. He he's he works very authentically with the original tapes and and tries to he just clarifies things just enough, but tries to use the same style of uh, of, of mixing panels and stuff in in a in a digital way that they used then, but just to clean it up. Whereas I think the Sgt. Pepper was was too 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 much.
1: Well, it was also a copyright release, so they could copyright a new version of it. Um, because it was running out in Europe. It was the 50 years that it was running out in Europe, 67 to 2017. So that's one of the reasons. Um, It's like CBS re-recorded Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations from, what was it, 1959 or whatever, 55. And they did this thing where they programmed a, a piano to play it, and they apparently programmed it to play it exactly like him. And they were trying to sell this as being... You know a better sounding version of Glenn Gould's Goldberg Variations because theoretically the dynamics were the same and the and the and the, the tempo and everything was exactly the same, but it was just you know record companies trying to take us for a ride again. It, it's funny you mentioned surround sound that there are a couple of bands that did play music live in surround sound. Pink Floyd notably. The only time I saw Pink Floyd was when they did The Wall. And I remember I saw them at the Nassau Coliseum and I was sitting relatively far back, but there were speakers on the stage and then all the way at the top of the arena on the front right and left and on the back right and left. And there are bits, you know, you hear it in in Dark Side of the Moon, the bits going left and right. Well, they were going in circles. When they were in a venue when, where they could have all those people
2: Well, I've I seen Pink Floyd many, many times. I saw them do the war twice, the, one, the summer of 1980 and, uh, or, and, and the summer of 1981 when they remounted it so Alan Parker could see it again. But I do remember them talking at the time when they did the war at Earl's Court in London. And they put big uh, um, uh, woofers underneath all the seats all the way round. Yep. Um, and that was uh, unheard of at the time, um, and it really made a huge difference. And Earl's Court is that venue that's perfectly round, right? No, no, it's actually a, a big stadium. Uh, it's a rectangular space, Earl's Court.
1: Uh, Which yeah. is the one that they do the proms in?
2: Oh, that's, that's the Royal Albert Hall. Royal Albert Hall. That one is
1: perfectly round. Yeah.
2: I went to see Eric Clapton every year he was there. And one year I saw him four times with his different, his six piece band, his 12 piece band, his orchestra and his little blues for, he'd, he'd do that album 24 nights is, is, he'd do six nights of one, six nights of the other, six nights of that. And I, I got tickets for all of it. That was a, uh, that was at the Royal Albert Hall. He, he's wonderful in fact one of the just, just go back to 68 when Cream did their final concert there's a TV show they did called Omnibus on BBC2 and I got my tape recorder which my father had given me a year or two before and I hung the microphone in front of the of the speaker um, <laughs> you know black and white TV I hung the microphone in front of it and I recorded this on, on a 7 inch reel and you can get the I've got the DVD now of that program and that takes me back because they, they interviewed each of the, the band members and they had Eric Clapton saying "Yeah, this is how I I'd get the wailing woman sound and they said and i'd play that over and over again on my tape to try and play it on the guitar but um that was just a, a memory <laughs> yeah.
0: i used to do that that's a really music geeky thing to do oh i remember when i was a kid they ran uh gimme shelter on television for the first time and i recorded it with my family's portable cassette deck and i had that tape for well probably years Um, And listen to it over and over and over again, so much so that I've, you know, I've memorized the music, I've memorized the dialogue from Gimme Shelter. We are so spoiled now. (laughs) We are. Um,
2: You know, right, these days I've been out and I've bought vinyl. I was interested to hear your guy the other week. talking about uh, the guy who produces records and, and talking about vinyl runs and stuff like that it was fascinating. I was Andy Doe.
1: Yeah. Link in the show notes to that episode.
2: Uh, astonished to find that uh, people buy vinyl now to, to put the covers up on the wall. I was like, "What what what? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not to do that. I mean, it's it's fun to look at the cover and so on. I love that, but it's no, I got mine all lined up underneath the record player. But um I've I got a I spent a bit of money on a turntable a year or so ago and I'm I tried buying new vinyl, but it's it's just, it's not the same. I use it to listen to all my old records on. Um, I bought a few things. I bought Black Star when Bowie died. I got Adele because somebody said, oh, you've got to hear the bass on this when you're on the vinyl. It's fantastic. And I thought, Meh, it's okay, you know. <laughs> um, and I got a couple of other things. Oh, I got some blues. I went back and got some uh, Miles Davis and stuff just because I thought I should have some in my collection. It was really rather pleasant. And I do like putting albums on, but it's sort of, like somebody said when the cd's came out about pink floyd um pink floyd wasn't was was not was made for the cd because you didn't like to come back from the edge of the universe you know halfway through dark side of the moon to turn the album over you wanted to stay there it, it, it's interesting i was interested you talked about the the thing on apple whatever that you'd done to to make it cut the album at a certain point when you're listening to it. So you, you had to get up and physically press the button. I thought, no, nah, I don't know about that. Yeah,
0: that's the Apple script I wrote called Sidesplitter. It makes you work to listen to music.
2: You know, I don't listen to a lot of vinyl these days. It's 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 mostly streaming. And occasionally I will go down a rabbit hole. I think you talked about this one time where you listen to stuff and you go, oh, I wonder what happened to them. I mean, when I went back over Van de generator. I Generator. Uh, oh, Caravan from the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and things like of course, family I mentioned the first console I went to they played at um there 's some beautiful un unheard by me stuff from those days there 's so much of that stuff there that that 's where my research goes rather than the new stuff yeah exactly that 's really what
1: I appreciate most about streaming is the ability to go back and all these bands that that I ignored when I was young. I was never a fan of Jefferson Airplane, and a while ago, I went back and listened to a lot of their early stuff. I was never really a fan of... Moody Blues never really grabbed me. I had one of their albums, and I listened to it a lot, probably Days of Future Past, but I never really listened to a lot of their stuff. And, and you know, sometimes there was a band, you, you there was the one album that they were known for, and you owned that album because everyone did, and you missed all the rest. And streaming gives you that opportunity to go back and check out what you missed back then. It is very nostalgic in a way, but th- there is stuff back there that's worth delving into the same way that you might go read all the works of a favorite author or something yeah. yeah well on that note simon
2: this has been a wonderful conversation it's been lots of fun indeed thanks a lot oh, it's been fantastic i i, I think i could as you can tell i could go on for hours i just uh, i love listening to music whether and, and whether it's live or it's on tape or it's on cd or it's on streaming
0: Now it is time for us to present our next tracks, the music that we'll be listening to. Kirk, what have you got? This week I have a new acquisition.
1: It is a re-release of a record by the Daruti column called The Guitar and Other Machines. This was originally released in 1982, and this is a transitional period for the Daruti column. Vinnie Riley, who was the person behind the Daruti column and still is, had gone from his non-factory music on factory records, this mellow guitar sinuous type of music, totally the opposite of Joy Division. And he had started adding new instruments like viola. I think there was a clarinet in some things. He did a record called Without Mercy shortly before this, which was, I think it was like a 15-minute piece. It was sort of symphonic. So this record brings that up to date with some kinds of sequencers and all that. It's very 1980s, but of course, very typically non-standard 1980s. The re-release is on three CDs. The first record is the original CD and some bonus tracks that were originally on the original CD release. The second record is a bunch of singles and other tracks that were on a variety of records and were never grouped together. And the third one is a surprisingly good live set from 1986. Now, De Rudy was generally pretty sloppy live. I never saw the band live, unfortunately, and all the recordings I've heard weren't great, but this one sounds very nice. A lot of the music is instrumental, and then some of it is with Vinnie Riley singing. The only thing that's odd is at the end of each song, when you hear the applause, it sounds like the applause is coming from another room. I'm not sure how they recorded this, because the recording's quite clean, but there's no audience interaction. It's a very sterile live recording. But musically, it's it's really excellent. So it's called The Guitar and Other Machines by the Daruti Column.
0: Doug, what about you? Simon brought up the band Family, a couple of times during the show, and family isn't thought of very much these days, and uh, their heyday was in the late 60s, early 70s prog rock era. They toured the U.S. a few times, but they didn't really catch on here as well as they did in England at the time. Rick Gretsch, who got more fame as the bass player for Blind Faith than he did with Family, was an original member, and another bass player they had was John Wetton, who played with them for about a year between his mogul thrash and... King Crimson gigs. The album by Family I'm listening to is the one John Wetton is on, and it's called Fearless, and it's from 1970. He is not the lead singer, uh, as he would be in Asia many years later. The lead vocalist for Family was a guy named Roger Chapman. Now, I've mentioned Family in past episodes, and I may have said that it was written of Chapman's really powerful singing that he could fell small animals at 50 paces. Now, I don't know who originally said that, but it is a great description. Roger Chapman and guitarist John Whitney were the chief songwriters for the band, whose style leaned towards rock, but they also used a lot of folk and jazz elements. The song from Fearless that I remember hearing on the radio is one called Larf and Sing, which featured a folkish a cappella chorus that I thought was really amusing. The rest of the album is really just a hodgepodge. Every song is a little different, but every song is like a little masterpiece. All the band members were multi-instrumentalists and they really created some interesting sounds and melodies without a lot of pretension, like some prog rock bands. This album actually charted in the U.S. when it was released, but I bought my original LP copy back in the day when it was in the cutout bin. So they just don't write them and record them like this anymore. Fearless by the band Family is my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.